0: Hello, friends, and welcome to the Coffee and Deer Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Pinozato, here with the good doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. Today, we're going to talk about the Maplands Act with our friend Joel Webster from Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. If you've never heard of the Maplands Act and why it matters to you, you're going to learn all that on today's show. And this is a policy, sort of policy focused episode. There are a lot of things that are happening out there that sportsmen aren't necessarily aware of, and it's not always the most exciting part of being an outdoors person, understanding policy, but that's one of the things we focus on here at the National Deer Association, and we certainly work with a lot of groups like TRCP and others, so you don't have to. (laughs) We make it as easy for you as possible so that you can spend your time focused on being in the outdoors. And speaking of being in the outdoors, the doctor and I were a little jet lagged this morning. We got up early and listened to listen for some uh, listen for some turkeys, unsuccessfully. So uh, we'll talk more turkeys later. But we're not off to the greatest start, are we, Doc?
1: We're not. We got uh, shut out today, and I I guess I, I could call it getting shut out yesterday because I didn't hear anything on public. The only bird I heard was on private. So I am batting zero. <laughs>
0: Well, you're batting zero and it doesn't really count yet and we're going to talk turkey a little bit as we close out the show a little bit later but uh, if we if we seem a little slower a little quiet today that's probably why already getting up in the four o'clock hour so hey our show sponsor today is on x and on x is a big part of this maplands act project which you're going to hear about uh they play a big role in in a lot of what we're going to talk about but also they're a first class company uh, unmatched when it comes to the amount of work they do that truly matters beyond just showing you where your favorite hunting spots are, where your tree stands are, where your sign is, all those types of things, <laughs> the names of your neighbors. Uh, they do a lot of other really good work too. They work with us on a chronic wasting disease layer. Uh, they work with, as you'll hear about the Maplands Act and what they do there and a whole host of other things. So much, much more than just a mapping company. And they've also been a long-time dedicated sponsor. So if you're still back in the uh, stone ages and not you don't have a map app on your phone yet, Onyx is the place to go. Check them out. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with being in the stone ages. There are times when you don't always have service or sometimes just a good old-fashioned compass will work. But for a lot of us nowadays, we are on apps like Onex. So again, check them out. Another reminder, NDA Giving Day coming up on May 11th. Some of our videos to promote that day have been starting to come out. Uh, mine has been out and it's focused on policy, which we're gonna talk about here today. Kip Adams' video just came out. And he's focused on a little bit more, uh, I'll say the cooler stuff, the habitat. The science guys, by the way, get to do all the cool stuff. I'm not sure how that works out. They, they stick me with policy, but I guess somebody has to do it. Uh, so you'll start seeing those coming out, talking about all the things that we do for deer and hunters and the next time you hear this show not this episode but the next episode will be on giving day so that's something to look forward to there uh also i want to thank folks who participated in our auction we had a really good auction turned out really well thank you for that Um, there's the one of the big prizes there well depending on how you look at it uh, is a hunt with me (laughs) and hank forster and in this case first light is going to join us this year in kentucky Uh, that that hunt raised $5,500, which is great. Um, and so that's just one of many other opportunities that we had as part of that. And again, we did well with it. So thank you. Also, uh, on that similar line, we still have chances available for the Ferminator sweepstakes that we're running, where you get a membership and you get a chance at a Furminator, an outstanding piece of equipment we've talked about many times here. I'll actually be getting my Furminator out here very soon. I've got some spring planning that I need to get done. So check that out if you haven't already ask nda anything next episode we're going to give you some answers Now, i will tell you that we've already received questions so it seems like every time i go out of my way uh, doc to raise awareness about it we get response
1: that was a very polite way to say that you know go out of your way to way to raise awareness i call it guilting (laughs) guilting (laughs) you're really good at guilting people and shaming people into doing things but but no, I, I give you a hard time about that. <laughs> I, yeah. think that's, I think that's amusing, so, but I'm glad we have questions coming in.
0: Yes, and we will answer them next show. And sometimes a little bit of shaming doesn't hurt. Like as we talk about coaching sports and as I tell my baseball players, I'm like, hey, go up there, you know, just relax, but whatever you do, don't embarrass your family. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, try to keep it loose that way, uh, but no pressure. Anyway, uh, Ask NDA anything next episode we're going to answer those and we got some good questions already so looking forward to that if you haven't submitted one yet nick at deerassociation.com is the place to do that okay let's go ahead and get into the interview as I mentioned our guest is Joel Webster Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership and we are going to talk Mapland Act so let's go ahead and bring Joel into the show. Joel Webster, the Vice President of Western Conservation at Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, joins us. And uh, Joel is a friend. He's a great partner to the National Deer Association, as is TRCP, which we'll get into in a bit. Matter of fact, I like Joel so much that I let him talk me into doing a 5K in Salt Lake a few years ago. And I didn't think about the elevation change. And about halfway through that thing, when I was almost dead, I was looking to kill Joel at the same time. So, you know, I don't just do that for anybody. So that was one of our experiences together. Uh, But uh, on a serious note, Joel is very passionate about his job, and he also lives the lifestyle, big time outdoorsman and hunter and a family man. So Joel, great to have you on the show to talk today about the Mapland Act.
2: Thank you, Nick. Great to be here. Thanks, Mike. Um, Just one point of clarification, you kicked my butt in that race. So um, I remember chasing you the whole time.
0: Well, I think you were just being nice, but uh, anyway, yeah, that was a good experience. I'm glad you talked me into it, and then we ate like horses afterwards at that little cafe, I remember, and undid all the good that we did. So, hey, Joel, tell us about TRCP first, and then then I want to get into your work. Tell us about you. Give us some background about you, and then tell us about TRCP.
2: Sure. Thanks, Nick. Um, so Joel Webster, I am the, as you mentioned, the vice president of Western conservation at the Theodore Roosevelt conservation partnership. Um, I've actually been on the organization for 14 years now, which is hard to believe. Um, but grew up out West, you know, hunting fish as much as I can. Although, um, as a family man, I, I find that I use my spare time for hunting more than fishing these days, but, uh, Love to get outside, but I work um, I work out of Missoula, Montana and uh, we've got about a dozen folks out West that work for us. Um, so I work with our team here as well as our folks um, back in DC and, and in other places in the country. So uh, TRCP, we're a national uh, conservation organization with a mission to guarantee all Americans quality places to hunt and fish. And we're a partnership in that we, um, we actually have 61 Formal partner organizations, including the National Deer Association, but other groups like Trout Unlimited, Mule Deer Foundation, Boone and Crockett Club, Wildlife Management Institute, groups like that, um, and we focus on policy. So we work on the rules that are created, whether through legislation or, you know, by administrations, whether it be federal or state. Although we do a lot of federal stuff. Um, that affect hunters and anglers, um, things that affect, you know, fish and wildlife habitat, um, funding for conservation because everything costs money, um, you know, as well as things like access that are in our ability to, to get outside and, um, and hunt and fish, which obviously if we don't have access, we can't, we can't enjoy these pursuits. Um, and so we work on five primary areas, public lands, which is um, really what the Western team spends a lot of its time on. Um, private lands. We're engaged in things like the Farm Bill, making sure that our working lands, um, you know, produce wildlife habitat. Um, obviously, there's more work, there's more private lands in this country than there are public, and uh, it's really important that they, um, you know, remain a cornerstone of hunting and fishing in this country. Marine fisheries issues, um, water, and then also climate. And uh, as I mentioned, I'm based out west, and so we spend a lot of our time on public lands.
0: Yeah, and your role specifically, you mentioned, I don't know if you use the word policy council, but you have a large policy council, as you said, over 60 organizations, the NDA is part of that. And you lead also a group that's a sort of a subcommittee off of that policy council. Why don't you tell us about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, we have a public lands working group. There's several. So basically, we have this larger policy council, which is a group that meets a couple times a year. Um, It's sort of a governing body where we meet and discuss and strategize around sort of major things happening that affect sportsmen and women. Then we also have smaller groups that um, we can really dig in on these issue areas. And so, um, you know, I moderate and organize a public lands working group that includes around 20 organizations that, you know, we get together once a month. Um, There's several issues we're digging in on, access being one of those where, um, you know, we're collaborating on those issues, we're sharing information, and we're we're thinking about how to um, engage in those issues collectively so we can have the greatest impact. Because if we're all in you know, meeting with decision makers or sending letters off to, you know, the land management agencies, and they all say something totally different, um, then we're not really being consistent and we're not asking, you know, folks for the same things. And if we do that, then we're sending mixed messages to them. We're not a priority. And so, um a big part of what TRCP does is we, we really try and try and try and facilitate that discussion within our community so we can agree on our top priorities and all go in with the same ask because that way we're going to have um the greatest ability of getting what we want
0: yes and it's critically important work i fear maybe i maybe i know and just hate to admit it i think public lands in a lot of cases are taken for granted by the average sportsman out there and so uh it's great that TRCP and others that partnership is so focused on that and we'll talk about that more in just a bit. But I want to talk more specifically. I like to talk about victories and we have a victory to talk about here and that is what is called the modernizing access to our public lands act. And we have a we love acronyms in this business, by the way, and so we always try to pare that down. And the Mapland Act is what you'll hear hear us refer to it as. What is it and why should hunters and other outdoor enthusiasts even care about it?
2: Yeah, Um, so what the Mapland Act is, is it's a bill that actually is passed out of both chambers of Congress and is about ready to be signed into law by the president. But what it does is two main things. Um, First off, it directs and funds the land management agencies across the board. So Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, Park Service, Fish and Wildlife Service, Bureau of Rec and Army Corps of Engineers, because Bureau of Rec and Army Corps own a lot of lands around around, um, reservoirs. What it does is it directs them first off to digitize and make publicly available any easements or access rights that they hold across private land. Um, And what these are is a lot of these agencies, I mean, for the last 100 years even, um, have been acquiring access rights, so basically what they call a right-of-way or road across private land where they own that right um, to have a road there that's open for the public. But those easements or access rights oftentimes are still held in filing cabinets on paper file and they've never been digitized and made available to the public. And um, from what we understand is about 50,000 of those that are owned by the BLM and the Forest Service that are still in paper files, and they're still housed down at the local agency office. And so as a result, in order to tell if a particular road crossing private land is a public road or a private road, you have to actually go down and have them pull the file out of the cabinet and study it to make sure that it's, it's open to the public. Now, a lot of them are marked, um, and so you can tell that way, but Um, you know, not having this information digitized and made publicly available really creates a lot of inefficiencies, but it also results in the public not knowing where they have access. I also think it results in the federal agencies not knowing really where they have access. And when you have a wildfire, um, you know, when you're looking at doing strategic, you know, land acquisition to try and open up access where it doesn't exist, like you need to know um, on the spot, like where that access is and where it isn't to help you sort of, you know, strategize and and having to have an expert dig through a filing cabinet when you need that information is just really inefficient. So this bill will require that that information be digitized and made available. But secondly, what it also does, I'm sure, you know, anybody out there who uses Onyx or another um, application on their smartphone for navigating public lands has noticed that there's like gaps in information. Like you'll go up to a, you'll be on public land and you're like, is this road open? Is it closed? Um, or you're just looking at your app trying to figure out how to get onto an area and there's like these lines on there and you're not sure if it's like a legit road or not. And, um, and so what MAPLAN also does is it directs the agencies to um, to basically in any area where they have, de- any places where they have designated roads, they have to create geospatial information that shows if there's any restrictions on those roads. So it could be like closures, but also what are the restrictions based on vehicle type? So is this road open to my four wheeler? Is this road open to e-bikes? Is this just a foot or a sort of horse you know, trail? Um, is this open to over snow vehicles? Or is it, you know? so basically it goes through all these different um, you know, vehicle type uses. And then it basically requires the agencies to delineate that in the geospatial information. So in the future, when you're looking at your app, you can click on that, that road or trail and it'll tell you what vehicles are allowed there, at what times of year. And I think oftentimes, you know, people rely on on the ground signage, which doesn't last very long. Oftentimes people pull that stuff over um, and their maintenance schedule isn't very good. And so there's a lot of like spur roads on public land where it's kind of a crummy two track. And you're like, is this a real road or not? Am I allowed to drive on this? And I think if it's not marked, a lot of folks do. And sometimes they're not real roads, but other times you may not because you don't think it is. And, um, you know, those are opportunities that you're missing because, um, you're just trying to, you know, follow the rules. And so this will require that that information also be made available. And then finally, what it also does is it requires that information about areas with shooting, like recreational shooting, as well as, um, restrictions on weapons be delineated geospatially. Oftentimes, um, on public lands, you'll have areas, you know, near like a ranger station or, um you know on a a refuge especially they have all sorts of crazy you know special restrictions for things like hunting and weapons restrictions and so um what what this bill does is it requires that that information be
0: available as well the first thing i'm thinking of here doctor is 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 an easterner if you're sitting there and you want to hey i want to go check out the little missouri national grasslands uh, you can't really go look at signs and see where you can get access from this, from this, uh, your office seat, can you?
1: You can't. And to be able to have digitized information that's accurate and up to date is going to be very helpful. I'll give you one specific example is up in New York. I every, you know, everyone that listens probably should understand now that I have a piece of ground up there. And, but I do love, hunting public ground. I do it a lot in Pennsylvania and I'd like to do more of it in New York. And we have public ground within two and a half miles of my place. And I've driven there. I've taken a look at it. I've parked in the parking lot, but as Joel was saying, the signage is not very good because it is actually sandwiched. The entrance to it is sandwiched between two private properties that are very heavily posted. And I it's very obvious where you enter, but once you're in there, the signage then completely drops off and it would not be a very hard You know, it wouldn't be very hard to wander into the wrong direction and wind up being on posted ground and wind up getting yourself in trouble and giving hunters, anglers or hikers a bad name. And that's just one example that I'm just very intimately aware of. So I think this is going to be something that is going to be so helpful to people to number one, the biggest thing is why do we go outside and we do all these things is because we enjoy it. But if you're constantly worrying about, have I done something wrong or you're worrying about, Oh, I'd love to be able to take a look over that Ridge, but I'm not sure if that is on this public piece of ground. So you're not enjoying yourself. And I think this would really open that up and allow us to relax and enjoy it the way that it was meant to be and designed.
0: Well, there are, Somewhere in the neighborhood of 37,000 existing easements, and only about 5,000 of those are digitized. Uh, this, according to our friends at TRCP. But uh, so now that digitizing is required, it still has to be done. So let me ask you this, Joel uh, How is it going to be paid for, and how long is it going to take to get all these things available to the public?
2: Yeah, a good question. So the bill includes funding will include an authorization for funding and so we're now working to make sure that that's appropriated which is another step to make sure that that money is delivered and so there is a funding component to the bill so it's not just an unfunded mandate um and then the bill also you know directs the agencies to complete this work in four years um and so that's the timeline that we're going to be um and you know pushing on the agencies to meet um you know obviously they and one of the things that also does is it directs the agencies to create data standards um, so that the information is similar across the board. They can have their own information, but it needs to be consistent. And, and one of the things that is more frustrating um, than anything for somebody like me in this work that starts to learn about like what's been done in the past is like there's certain geospatial information that's been created in the past that was not actually if it had been just a little bit different, it'd be super useful for recreation. But when they developed it, they weren't thinking about recreation. So they went through a whole bunch of work to create this information that actually is of low value to the public. And one of those is the Bureau of Land Management's transportation layer. So when they do travel management planning, which is a process, and this is in the weeds stuff, I get it, but they actually go through a process where they're like, we're going to identify what roads and trails are open and which ones, you know, for, for all, for motor vehicle use and which ones are closed. Um, And and they go through a whole process to designate those routes. And then when they're done, they have a transportation layer to make that information available in a geospatial form. Well, the BLM's transportation layer makes it optional um, to identify like what vehicles are allowed on which road segments and, and, and things like that. And so there's actually like holes in the information. And so all it is are these linear lines and you can't tell whether or not it's okay to drive there and they need to be providing more detailed information. So folks can just easily pull this up and click on it and know, and also is, um, you know, when you've got new technologies coming online, like e-bikes, for example, right, you see all this, these articles around e-bikes, Um, And and a lot of them are misleading, a lot of them because these agencies have created these policies that allow their local offices to create e-bike compatible trails that are closed to other types of motorized vehicles. People assume that they can now drive, ride them everywhere, which is actually not the case. And so there's a ton of confusion around it. Um, but, but again, just being able to click with your thumb or just sort of press on it, I guess with a touchscreen and have it sort of show this, this route is open to mountain bikes, e-bikes, dirt bikes, you know, horses and foot, right. You know, right then this is what I can take on there, but I can't take my side by side or my pickup or whatever. So, um, that'll be really helpful too, just with, with all these different technologies out there in transportation
0: heck yeah, sometimes some of the information is worse than none of the information. So, yep, uh, we want to get complete information out there so that people, are as the doctor said, nobody wants to feel like they're potentially doing something wrong, and we don't want people trying to just recreate end up uh, you know, getting a ticket or whatnot. So, uh, speaking of people, this is something I thought about with this, and because I, you know, watch social media, I see how people think sometimes. And sometimes there's a selfish nature to things. And what I was wondering is, what do you say to people who might not like the Mapland Act because maybe they know where some of these places are and they don't like the idea of, of Easterners or even people that live near them finding those same spots and because they're now easily available?
2: I'm sure there's probably some of that. Um, you know, I think... There's some people who've done their homework, right? They've discovered an easement um, by going down to the courthouse and pulling some record on a property or going down to the Forest Service and asking a specific question about a road and or a trail that's marked on the map. But when you go out there on the ground, it says no trespassing by the landowner. Like Some of that exists. Um, and so they went and did their homework, they found an easement, they contacted the warden, right? To be like, hey, I've got an easement here, I'm gonna use this. They reach out to the landowner, which is what you should do, so you don't get shot. And um, you know, and, and so they've found some access like that. I'm sure that that there are a handful of examples of that. Um, you know, I think there's also probably some landowners out there that know that there's a federal easement across their property, and they're hoping that the public doesn't know that it exists because it's more convenient for them than not have the public cross their land. And I'm actually aware of some of these examples. Um, I'm sure there's some of that, but I think more common is that these are public access routes that almost nobody's using. There's a handful of them out there, right? and, you know, having that information out there for the public is going to provide clarity for everybody. These are non-disputable. These are permanent recorded easements. They're not not—they're not like a prescriptive use kind of thing, right? These are recorded in the deed of a property. Um, and so uh, I think, you know, in, in those cases, like this is just good for everybody. It sort of clarifies everything. It also helps you find out where these don't exist and where you might think you have access, but you don't. Um, And I think that's an important thing as well. And I know that the issues of access are stickier than just this issue, right? There's things like county roads where the county maintains a road. And so the county therefore has an easement. Um, There's issues like prescriptive use where because of regular and continuous use, um, there is the potential that a permanent easement could be established by a court, but it hasn't. Like there's some issues like that that create they're going to continue to create some confusion on access, but this is one step toward um, providing clarity for everybody. So both landowners and the public and the agencies all have the same information that's cannot be disputed. And I think that's in the best interest um, of the public, you know, as a whole.
1: So Joel, you you might not be able to answer this question just yet. So, There is monies that are, that is going to be included in this act, which is good. Now, in regards to mapping services, you mentioned Onyx, and there are some other ones out there as well. Will this information be provided to them free as, you know, as someone that doesn't deal with this every day, like myself, you know, we look at things like, as the trickle down effect, is it going to cost the, the outdoorsman or woman? any, anything in, in either these prescription or these subscription services, or uh, is there any gonna be any trickle down to us financially or is that information to be publicly and readily available?
2: Yeah, good question. Um, so this information will be available to everyone for free in that the agencies have to create this geospatial information and make it available to the public. And so they're gonna put it on their websites. Um, So like the Bureau of Land Management, for example, has already started to digitize their access easements and they have an interactive map on their website. Um, I'm forgetting exactly what it's called, but if you search for it, you can find it where it's like an access map for the Montana Dakota's BLM office, where they went through and evaluated all of their access rights and created actually a, a map where you can pull it up and it'll show them. They highlight on that map um and that's a project that they're looking to expand across their entire across the whole country right most of their holdings are in the west but it's something they're going to do across the whole country where they have them um and that information is going to be available to everyone for free that way now also um your on x's of the world you know your your go hunts they're going to be able to use this information as well you know as well as you know applications you know in the non-hunting space right people who mountain bike or or hike or whatever, they're going to have access to this information too, um, to those respective applications. Plus, if you're a person who likes messing around with maps, um, you know, these layers are going to be available. So if you're a person who's into making your own maps to GIS, if you have those skills, like you will be able to, to use it for that as well, for, you know, the cost of your time.
0: Well, as awesome as the Mapland Act is, and I love it, people should love it. I'm going to get to a topic that I don't love and that I still think as much education and outreach has been put out there. People are still largely unaware of this, and that is this issue of corner crossings and landlocked public land that is out there that. Those of us who own public land, which is all of us, we can't get to it, and so, uh, Joel, I want to Turn this over to you to explain what it is I'm talking about and tell us sort of where we're at with uh, potential changes to this.
2: Sure, I'm happy to. I'm glad you gave me a nice softball here, Nick. Um, (laughs) So, you know, when you go back 150, 170 years ago, when, um, you know, or even more recent that even the early 1900s in some places when, you know, the federal government was encouraging settlement in the West, they were giving away land essentially. Right. And as part of that, I mean, there were things like the Homestead Act where, you know, a person could go out and stake their claim and get 160 acres. But There was also things like railroad land grants and the way that the government Um, divided up the land was um, in square miles. So basically sections is what they're called. And they went into a thing called a township where there's 36 square miles in each township. So six miles by six miles. And there's all these square mile sections inside of it. And so when they were divvying up the land, it was divvied up in these square miles, in, in, in portions of or in these entire square mile sections. And so with the railroad land grants, they were giving... The railroads alternating sections um, on both sides of the tracks, sometimes as many as like 20 miles um, for an extent of like 20 miles on both sides of the tracks. And so just these huge swaths of these checkerboarded lands where the railroads were given essentially every other section. And so it looks like a checkerboard where um, let's say the black squares are the private, they become the railroad lands and the red squares stayed in the public domain at that time with the general land office. And so as a result of, especially the railroad land grants, um, it created a mess in terms of, you know, land ownership. They also were giving, for example, you know, grants to the states. And so um, a lot of states in the West would receive, you know, two sections per township. And, um, you know, they, they were not connected. It was like section 16 and 36, um, across, you know, the entire state, they were given those lands and those were for the purposes of supporting state institutions like schools. And as a result, like, and then at the same time, as I mentioned, like the Homestead Act, you've got people, um, going to the other, you know, sort of public domain areas and settling around water or areas that, um, were suitable, you know, for farming or haying, um, while not claiming lands in like the uplands or in broker, broken country where it was of lower value for agriculture. And so as a result of that, you know, we have this longstanding legacy of an arbitrary land ownership pattern across the West, especially on BLM lands, because like national forest lands, national parks, national wildlife refuges, those lands were all set aside for conservation purposes, right? They are actually actively set aside for a conservation reason, while BLM lands were what went unclaimed. Um, they were the lands that that never um, never were settled. And so oftentimes they're just scattered, you know, across. And there's some places where they're, you know, big blocks of them, but there's a lot of places where they're scattered. So anyway, in 2000, this is an issue that, um, become people have you know grown in awareness of, uh, especially just with the advent of modern GPS technologies um, in the past decade, you know people knew about these these places for a long time. But then when you started looking at your GPS and you're like, man, there's a thousand acres of BLM right there. there's 5,000 acres of BLM right there and I can't get there. I'm on this road, I can see that land, but there's this private property between me and that and there's no public road to get me there, right? So in 2018, TRCB teamed up with ONX um, and we actually did a series of reports from 2018 to 2020 um, that identified 16.43 million acres in 22 states um, that are landlocked. So you cannot get to them without permission from a neighboring landowner. You got to knock on that door and get permission across their land because there's just no way to get there. Not thinking about things like topography and other stuff like that, but just not not even a possibility. And um, so there's that issue. But then there's this issue of corner crossing where you where you have these checkerboarded lands, where you have these BLM lands, they actually meet at a corner. So you, um, you know, when you think about it, right, so you walk up to that corner, there's a survey pin right in right at the corner. So you know exactly where um, those two corners meet, there's this whole concept of stepping over from one you know, corner of public to the other corner of public to go then use that, that public land. And there's a big debate and conflict that's really hot right now, especially in Wyoming, where um, you know, there's a dispute whether or not that is legal. Um, you know, private landowners argue that they own that airspace above that private land and so therefore um, it is illegal to cross that corner because you are you know violating their private property rights and and there are folks in the public that you know that argue that it is in fact not illegal because they're not actually impeding on that landowner's ability to use their land. And so there's a, a court case right now in Wyoming where um, some gentlemen actually use a stepladder to cross over a corner um, from one you know, parcel of BLM to another. I think they were elk hunting and um, they actually ended up getting cited. And this landowner um, has been really aggressive in, in uh, pursuing legal action from these individuals. And I know backcountry hunters and anglers did a GoFundMe and raised a ton of money to create a legal fund um, you know, for these sportsmen. And this case has actually been elevated to federal court now. Um, And we're going to see, you know, where that ends up. I think that it's really just from what I understand about this issue. And please know that I, I know just enough to be dangerous. I'm not an attorney, Um, you know, but I think it's really sort of unclear where um, the law starts and where it stops in terms of what's legal and what isn't. And it's also very situational, right? Um, Like there might be cases where corner crossing, Is legal. There might be cases where it isn't, um, depending on the local situation. I don't know, but it'll be really interesting to watch this court case play out. Um, I do know too that you know, in terms of how many people have been asking, like how many um, lands are affected by this, right? How many lands are locked at the corner if they're if it is illegal to cross at the corner? How many of them are locked up because of that? And, And Onyx recently released a new report. Um, showing that in the West, anyway, in the eleven Western states, that 8.3 million acres um, are essentially locked at the corner, which is about half um, of the landlocked lands in the West. Now, you know, realistically, um, you know, there's there's things like terrain, right? You might have a corner that meets at a cliff. Um, you're going to have places that aren't surveyed, and like a handheld GPS is not it's only precise into about you know 10 or so feet. And so unless you actually have a surveyed corner, um, you don't really know where that corner is. And so I think realistically, um, you know, the number, if corner crossing were somehow made, le- made legal, clearly the number of lands that would be open for corner crossing um, for public access would probably be quite a bit smaller than 8.3 million acres, but still that's a fair amount of land. Um, you know, I think, obviously, this is an issue that people are passionate about. It's an issue that, um, you know, is important, right? The public should have access to their lands. I also know that it's very contentious and you have, um, it creates a lot of conflict with private landowners. And so, um, you know, as an organization, you know, TRCP is really focused on on, on, on voluntary measures, proactive measures, working with landowners to make lands accessible. Uh, we've worked with the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which is a federal program um, that must provide a minimum of $27 million a year um, to opening and expanding public access. You know, we've supported some state programs as well, where like the state fish and wildlife agencies work with landowners to create easements. And there's also these state walk-in access programs like in Montana um you know the block management program opens a lot of landlocked lands to the public so there's other ways to get at this issue that we've chosen as an organization to spend our our time on because at the end of the day like um you know resolving this issue sort of in a larger way is going to require you know hunters and landowners working together you know with that said I, I I appreciate you know the passion on this landlocked issue and 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 the fact that folks are are trying to resolve it. Um, But it's definitely, it's a contentious one. And I think it's important to recognize that.
0: Yeah. And thanks for that description. I mean, to just boil it down into the simplest terms, imagine you're standing in a checkerboard and you can't step over the corner and access thousands and thousands of acres because airspace, whatever. that The airspace argument for me doesn't hold water. Otherwise, we'd never be able to fly an airplane, right? So it's like, I don't know. There's just a whole bunch of things to it. It's very complicated. None of us are attorneys here. Um, obviously, how that court case turns out is going to be very precedent setting. Uh, who knows? We might be in the Supreme Court here before it's all said and done. But the main goal, as you said, and I think the, the critical point here is we want to give people access. And there's no reason. I realize some of these private landowners, you hear stories that uh, they like it locked up, but yet then they go on it because they can get it from their property and they do things like outfit hunts and so on, but to keep the public off of it. I think all of that stuff's crap, to be honest with you. Uh, those types of things really uh, irritate me and is the, and they should anybody. Um, but anyway, I could go off on a long tangent. So, doctor, I want to, you know, this is that situation. You and I, we have a state game lands. Now, this isn't a federal issue, but there's a spot. This is a giant state game lands, 3,000 acres. But really, unless you're a very able-bodied person, you can't access half of it because you can stand on the road and literally look and see the entrance to the game lands, but you can't get to it <laughs> because there's private land, this little sliver that doesn't make it to the road. And so that's a more a, a local sort of state example. And it's frustrating, isn't it, doctor, to look there and see that sign and know that those people pretty much have that whole section of game lands to themselves. It is. And now as you said it's it's game lands and
1: we have access to it via another route but you had to be very able-bodied and so uh, we see these situations and joel's talking about that it's something that is frustrating from the sports man or woman's side of it because there's something that would be a lot easier access for someone that might have some type of disability whether it be age or physical impairment that would be able to access this spot a little bit easier or have at least more acreage opened up to individuals. Conversely, you still have an individual that owns private property that's paying their annual taxes on the place. And I think you know that we can all have our opinion. And I think that that line gets crossed is if the, the landowner winds up taking advantage of that for their own benefit in some way, shape or form, whether it be financial or otherwise, that's where, you know, I guess morals and ethics come into play, but this is a very factual issue that we're trying to deal with and we're discussing. And you can go down that ethics rabbit hole, I'm, so, I'm sure, for days. <clears throat> but to come back to the Maplands Act and what it's doing is at least opening up so many more hundreds to hundreds of thousands to millions of acres to individuals. And I think that's what we really should be excited about and celebrating. Not that I'm saying that the the discussion of these corner crossings isn't important, but I guess, you know, you have to pick your battles and I'm sure Joel, you know, has, has an opinion about picking battles and which ones to go after. But I think that's what I have to look at is that I'm excited for this. I think it's a, it's a good thing. And I, I, I'd prefer to focus on the positive than sour myself on, on the small things that are going to probably be years, decades, hopefully not centuries in, in litigation or at least, you know, locked up in
0: legality. Well, I think that's well said because my problem is I want to pick all the battles. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, if there's a right or wrong, I always, I always want to fight for the the right and it's not always productive. So uh, speaking of uh, uh, relationships and battles and, and allies, I want to, I want to bring this around to the relationship between Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership and the National Deer Association, which is a great partnership. We don't have an office in DC. Uh, TRCP does, and obviously Joel's in Montana, but there are a lot of staff in DC as well. And whenever we go to DC, which is somewhat regularly, uh, we are typically there walking halls of Congress and doing things with our friends at TRCP. And as a matter of fact, we have a memorandum of understanding to work collaboratively on issues that impact deer and hunting. And I also want to say that Whit Fosberg, the CEO of TRCP, is on the NDA board of directors. And so it's a very tight relationship. And another thing I've always appreciated about TRCP, and speaking of wanting to pick all the battles, uh, TRCP never sells out for the sake of personal relationships or politics. There are the issues and there are the issues, period. Just like the National Deer Association, there's the science and there's the science. And that's what guides guides us, period. And so I have that's one of the reasons I've always felt very comfortable working with TRCP is that there are sometimes areas of gray that happen. There's no way to avoid that. But in terms of the issues, they're black and white and there's right and wrong and so on and so forth. So we work together on CWD is another thing we work on a lot of access issue, obviously, and many other things. So, uh, Joel, I want to thank you for that and also just from your perspective with trcp there's a lot of effort you all put toward deer and we know that eight out of ten people that hunt anything hunt deer so just tell us a little bit about that
2: yeah um well first just you know thanks for those kind words i mean you know nda's like one of our favorite partners i mean you guys are super active involved you always show up um and you're always a willing partner and you know i think just a testament to what you said um you know about us staying focused on the issues and really trying to to get people to yes on on being successful versus getting caught up in the politics i mean we you know we're successful in getting things done under every administration um and and we'll say thank you to every administration when they do the right thing and um And just I guess a couple, you know, quick examples of that. I mean, under the the last administration, you know, we were successful in in seeing the land and water conservation fund um you know permanently and fully funded. And um, you know, we really appreciated that work and also you know some of the wildlife migration work that directly um benefits you know mule deer, where there's a ton of work going on. Um you know, through research and collar, through collaring, but, but mapping of, of wildlife migrations where they travel from their, their summer, um, you know, to their winter ranges and back again and making sure they continue to complete those life cycles. Because they're critically important in maximizing deer populations, which um, is directly correlated with, with hunter opportunity. Um, you know, some, some other stuff that, that we've been working on that, you know, directly benefits deer Um, you know, we're involved in, in forestry issues, you know, making sure that, um, you know, there's, there's smart, active management of our forests that create young forest environments that benefit, um, deer populations, um, provide that forage as well as other, you know, ungulates and turkeys and other species. Um, again, as I mentioned the the wildlife migration work, you know, and we've been involved a lot in farm bill programs, um, which I know, you know, in the heartland and places like that are critically important for, for producing whitetails. And um, that's not my area of expertise, but, um, you know, programs like the Conservation Reserve Program, um, you know, are, they not only produce pheasants. They, they're great for deer. And, uh, you know, anybody who likes to, to hunt in that part of the world knows that. So, um, you know, just a whole bunch of stuff that we're doing that really tries to grow the pie. We're really focused on the habitat and growing that pie, which is directly tied to, to opportunity.
0: Yes, it's a lot. It's a very deep relationship, as I said, and yeah, I didn't even mention Farm Bill, which with even within the Farm Bill, there's 100 things that impact deer positively that we work on. So, hey, Joel, I want to give you a chance to plug the Capital Conservation Awards Dinner. You mentioned the bipartisan nature of uh, the TRCP and, and our organization as well, and that's a very bipartisan event, too, because you give awards out across the aisle, and uh, it's just a fun event. So tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. Um, so every year TRCP has, you know, a a big dinner it's in DC. Um, it's our annual fundraiser. It really helps support a lot of the work that we do. Um, it's great to see our partners there every year. It's tied to some other meetings that we have where we talk about the issues. Um, but as part of that, we, we honor, um, you know, two members of Congress, a a Democrat and a Republican, um, for good work that they've done on conservation. And this year, um, our dinner is actually coming up. It's in two weeks. It's on May 4th. And, um, you know, we are honoring Senator Daines from Montana, um, you know, who in in recent years has been, you know, really helpful on, on some of our key priorities, including, you know, he was a real leader on the Land and Water Conservation Fund um, he was an original supporter on the MAP land act. He's been really good on CWD on chronic wasting disease, as well as on good Samaritan legislation, which is focused on cleaning up abandoned mines. And so, um, he's our Republican, um, honoree, and then also, um, representative McCollum out of Minnesota, who has been a real champion for the boundary waters, which, um, anybody who spent some time in Northern Minnesota, um, or has probably been to, um, the boundary waters canoe area, which is just really a special place to be able to go up there and the canoe and portage and, you know, fish for bass and walleye. Um, well there's a giant mine proposed in that watershed that would directly affect, um, that amazing area that, that representative McCollum has been involved to, to keep out of that watershed. And so, um, we're saying thanks to her as well. Looking forward to it.
0: Yep, As are we, and we're happy to be a sponsor of that event this year. So uh, folks, I want to, well, first of all, Joel, I want to thank you. I want to tell people where they can find TRCP. Uh, The website is, do you want to give us the website, Joel?
2: Yeah, it's super simple. It's just trcp.org. You can find us there. We're also, you know, on all the different social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Um, we're active there. So check us out.
0: Yep, absolutely. And you can find Joel. I'm going to send him your Instagram, Joel, if that's okay with you. It's uh, Joel underscore Webster underscore MT from Montana. Uh, Always some good stuff there posted by by Joel and be sure to check it out. So, hey, uh, appreciate you being on, my friend. This is very good and helpful information and uh, looking forward to seeing you here very soon.
2: Yeah, it's going to be fun. Uh, Nick, Mike, thanks so much for your time. Always great to catch up.
0: Mike, you could just hear Joel's pure passion for his work and what he does. Uh, TRCP, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, has been a really great partner of the National Deer Association. I think some of that came through in this interview. Uh, but Joel, is he's passionate. He's one of these guys that's really passionate about policy. I give him credit for that. <laughs> its It's hard for me to get excited about at times. At some point, we'll have our our own policy guru, Torin Miller, on the show as a guest and talk about some of the things we work on. Uh, But at any rate, I thought that was a very descriptive and informative interview with Joel for people that had no idea about the Mapland Act and how many millions of public acres there are out there that just aren't easy to access.
1: Well, and I'm going to go against what you said when we first opened this, that policy is boring. I found that This is exciting. This is something that anybody who is interested in the outdoors needs to be excited about because it is getting and granting access to locations that were already available, but we did not know about it and that is exciting.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is, uh, I think for the people that don't deal with it every single day, and especially if there are issues that are particular interest to a person, it, it definitely can be exciting. And other exciting things that happened on the policy front is we just had the CWD Research and Management Act was just introduced uh, this past Thursday. And that's a huge step forward for chronic wasting disease. Not that that bill itself is going to solve chronic wasting disease, but it at least is actually having a bill introduced to do something with chronic wasting disease. So it's at least a victory on that front. And as I mentioned earlier, we'll have to get Torn Miller on the show. He's He's also the one that heads up our uh, NDA's online advocacy center where we literally make it so easy that you can go in on a particular issue and with a few clicks of a mouse, you can be sending letters off to your legislators. So if you haven't checked that out yet, please go to DeerAssociation.com and navigate to the advocacy center. I think you'll find that very informative as well. Well, Mike, we teased this in the in the beginning of the show, we're already in BT mode. We went out this morning listening for birds. It's a bluebird sky, a little cold, admittedly, not a cloud in the sky, though. We expect to hear lots of birds. And go ahead and break it down. What happened? Well, I'm going to back us
1: up 24 hours when we were texting back and forth. And you were sitting in the same location the day before. And all of a sudden it came down. Um, I heard five. I heard one here, two here, three here, four here, five here. I'm out in the middle of Nowheresville, USA on state land and didn't hear a thing other than a bird way off in the distance on private. And I'm thinking, okay, so we make a plan to go out this morning and we're going to return to where you were yesterday to try and button these birds down before we actually hit the woods tomorrow morning, uh, which is our first day of the spring gobbler opener. And it was... A beautiful morning crisp crisp cold uh and clear skies as you said but dead silent we never heard a bird and <laughs> for someone like me that makes me a little bit nervous
0: heading into tomorrow yeah it's interesting right you can as a human being you look at certain days and you just say oh they're going to be hammering today or when the rut you know in deer season this is always a good one it's a cold crisp morning and like oh they're going to be rutting hard today <laughs> but at the end of the day they are species of their own and they decide when they want to do things and when they don't and so yeah despite what a beautiful morning it was for us it wasn't for the turkeys in terms of gobbling and the thing that was interesting is and why I'm not nervous is that there was no wind and we could hear forever and it's not like we could hear turkeys gobbling on neighboring properties or a half mile away. They just weren't talking this morning. I and mean, we even did see uh, one hen at least walking through the woods. So we know the turkeys are around. They just weren't exposing or you know, giving us their location this morning.
1: You're right. And that's, that is true. I just like to over-exaggerate how you just lured me out there for, you know, uh company I'm, I'm guessing is what it was more than anything else, because it was, it was just conversation this morning. That was about it.
0: Well, I did feel like, like a bit of an idiot because I'm thinking I was just telling you <laughs> the other yesterday, how many birds I was hearing and we go to the same exact spot and we don't hear squat. But uh, anyway, we're going to give it a shot. As you mentioned tomorrow, you're going to listen to this on a Wednesday. Our opener will have been this past Saturday. And so by the time you're hearing this, we'll already have some type of story to share, but uh, opening day, uh, what are your goals, doc? What are your goals for the season? Wow.
1: Wow. You caught me off guard there. What are my goals for the season? Well, um, for me, the, the big goal is, is making memories. And I know that sounds lame, but as you well know, I'm, I'm making a major career shift in, in my life. And the amount of time that you and I are going to be able to hunt together is going to be drastically decreased. And so for me, this is, I'm not saying it's our last
0: hurrah, but this is our last convenient hurrah, I guess. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, the doctor is uh, going to become a professional belly dancer instructor and uh, is going <laughs> to be moving away from the location. No, nobody wants to see that. <laughs> no. And, I'm, and I apologize for making people even think of that. So, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah, big change is coming up here and this will be uh, a unique turkey season for sure so we're going to go out and give it heck and make more b team memories i'm sure um so as far as today's show let's go ahead and leave it at that uh, folks i want to thank you again for listening and for all your support the doctor and i really do love doing the show and, and we're glad that are glad that you like it as well thank you for the kind reviews if you haven't left a review yet please still consider doing that uh, also, we still are running the promo code to join the National Deer Association for $5 off. So for $30, bucks, if you use the promo code podcast, you can become a member of the NDA. So if you are on the been on the fence about that, please come off the fence and get yourself a membership. Good luck if you're out in the turkey woods. Please be safe as well. National Deer Association, where we are, united for deer.